Hey, welcome to the podcast of The Kelly Cutrera Show. Monday, March 29th show could be uh, called All Business All the Time. Why? Because we're going to focus on how businesses deal when they are in crisis via a social media dilemma that they are facing and what you can learn from that General Mills experience with a crisis manager. We will also be focusing on how businesses have had to pivot during this pandemic, specifically pizzerias. Pizza Libretto's executive chef and partner will be joining the show. Rocco Augustino will tell us how they've had to move into the frozen pizza business during this pandemic. But first, let's talk Inc. Uh, April 12th is the date when some personal care services in gray lockdown zones will be allowed to open at uh, limited capacity by appointment only. These include hair and nail salons, barbershops, and tattoo parlors, or should I say tattoo studios. Our guest right now, Ian Greening, owner of Artistic Integrity Tattoo Studio in Port Credit, Mississauga. Ian, you've been on the show before, and it's great to have you back. Great to be here. Thanks, Kelly. You know, I've been told I have a great face for radio. Well, yeah, ditto. How long have you been uh, been closed now? Uh, well, on this particular lockdown, uh, we've been shut down since the end of November, so beginning of December, uh, because we're in Peel region. So Peel and uh, Toronto were shut down prematurely, and then, of course, there was the provincial lockdown that started on December 26th. And then, of course, after that started to reopen uh, months later, uh, Peel and Toronto continued to be in what they call the gray zone, uh, and consequently, uh, hair and nail salons and uh, uh, gyms and personal service industry people were completely not allowed to open up at all, not even with any restrictions. So, uh, yeah, we've been completely shut down since the uh, beginning of December. So this was welcome news for you that you can expect to reopen April 12th. Uh, do you need two weeks lead time? Well, this is the thing. Um, I'm not sure if a lot of people realize that, you know, closing up these regions all kind of individually and stuff have a lot of different impacts. And one of those is, is that not only do some of your customers tend to, uh, go to other regions to go get services done where they're available to do so, and they're not affected by the lockdowns, but sometimes you'll lose staff as well. So other staff members that Mm. used to be here, uh, went off to other regions where they could go and continue to work. And, and that is definitely a factor. So, um, you do need the two-week lead time then. Well, in a way, yeah, it is something that we're going to need to, you know, approach and, uh, you know, look at ways of, you know, restaffing or, or rescheduling things or, you know, some some people are having stuff done by one person that may need to get them done by somebody else. I know at least one of my other staff has completely uh, left the tattooing industry and gone on to uh, to fitness and, and health and, and whatnot that he was working on already. So. You know, there's going to be issues like that. Yeah. The other issue that we have, too, is, uh, you know, it's kind of the once bitten, twice shy. We've been told we are going to open several times before. And right at the last minute, we're told that we're not going to be able to. And that's happened many, many times, not only on the first original shutdown, but on this last one. It's happened you know, many times. So uh, as far as scheduling people, I'm a little bit gun shy on this because, you know, like I said, it's happened before. I don't want to schedule a whole bunch of people and then have to call people back and let them know that we're not doing it. And also, I think just in all fairness to the customers, I'm going to just sort of treat it like a first come, first serve. So when 
I come in here and I actually open up the door and it's ready to go. And, you know, there's, I'm actually sitting in the chair. Then I'll start taking calls and booking people in first come first serve kind of thing. Because I'm, Wow. I'm, I did not anticipate you saying that, Ian. I mean, to me, that seems like, um, it it seems kind of short-sighted because and and you know I'm not in the industry but I think a lot of people be shocked by that because I would imagine that uh people want to uh book their appointment like you would a, a hairdresser um if you see people coming back to you do you anticipate that this is going to be a situation of people wanting to get works that you've started finished well, that's the thing. There's a lot of stuff that was on the go. There's a lot of projects that were sort of halted midstream. Uh, and, of course, those people are a priority. Um, but again, uh, like I said, we had we had been scheduled to reopen several times already. And then it just turns into a logistical error because we mm-hmm. have to. It's a nightmare, really, because you have to go back and call these people and tell them that they can't. And of course, you know, the very first thing is, oh, well, can't we just do it, you know, under the oh, radar, kind of, you know, and you don't, you don't want to treat them like they're not important, but you also don't want to be breaking the law and, and not participating in, you know, in the community effort to stop the spread of COVID, right? So, you know, Ian, every time we talk to you, I learn something new. And I think what we're learning here is this isn't just about providing a service. This is about negotiating your way around a relationship with your clients. Because it seems to me, even though I know you're struggling like all the other businesses that have had to remain closed down, you don't know, um, you know, how far the government aid can take you and how long your business can survive. The most important thing to you is that you make sure you maintain a, a good relationship with your client. Well, that's a big part of it, too. And uh, and I've noticed, you know, other uh, colleagues in the industry are, are starting to uh, feel the effects of all of this lockdown and the relationship that we have with our customers. And in a lot of cases, even myself, you get a little, you know, uh, overwhelmed by all of this and you're, you find yourself not really responding to emails. You're sort of in a, in a lull where you're sort of depressed that you're not seeing your customers, you're not being able to service your customers. You're not, you know, trying, you're, you're kind of not even keeping in touch with, people anymore and it's uh, it's definitely an effect last time we spoke you said there are unique challenges when it comes to personal services like tattoo studios uh, because you are as invasive as dentistry can you walk us through the ways that you have made sure that um that the, these invasive procedures and you know um are minimized or uh the the risk is minimized for the health of your clients well as I mentioned before, too, like you got to understand that the the tattoo industry is over, already very stringent when it comes to that kind of stuff. So we're already familiar with, you know, we're wearing gloves all the time when we're dealing with people. There's barrier films that we put on on surfaces. All the surfaces around the the tattoo stations are all non-porous and like glass and and uh, aluminum and stainless steel, that kind of thing. So there's there's cleanable. We've always been using Cavicide and Lysol wipes to clean surfaces. All of the uh, the needles and, and things of that nature are all pre-sterilized single use. We have uh, um, medical containers that they go into and there's uh, services that come in and replace those uh, like sharp containers and all that. So uh, really the only difference uh, with a tattoo shop would be that now we're we're using masks and uh, there's hand sanitizer available at the door and of course we're going to take your temperature and ask you a few questions about where you've been and and uh, your risk of exposure but really there's 
there's uh, not a lot of change when it comes to the introduction of the COVID. And, and that's um, another one of the issues about how, you know, we've all been closed down because we, we already can only deal with one customer at a time. I can't tattoo two people at the same time. So we're only dealing with one person. We're, we're attentive to that. So I guess the only real difference is now is we're going to keep the door closed and uh, uh, deal with one person at a time by Mm -hmm. appointment only. And uh, so, you know, there's not there's just not going to be as many people just kind of loitering around or hanging around kind of thing while we're while we're working. But uh, other than that, uh, things are pretty close to the same, I would imagine. Well, Ian, so at Artistic Integrity Tattoo Studio in Port Credit, your plan is let's you know, take a pause. We'll plan to reopen on April 12th, but until April 12th, until you get the green light and it's April 12th and you're still good to go, you won't be taking any reservations. Yeah, that's basically it. Like we're sort of earmarking a couple of people that are already have been calling me uh, today and and yesterday. And we're just kind of letting them know that, you know, this, we are planning on opening, but you know, we've done this before. You remember, I was uh, even on your show before, and this was the Friday, and we were planning on opening up on the Monday, which was, uh, I believe, the 22nd, and then that didn't happen again. So, I mean, here we were already doing this once before, and and it didn't happen. So, Man, uh, I, I, Ian, fingers are crossed for you. I hope that you can reopen on the 12th, and uh, I wish the best to you. Thank you so much for being so generous with your time. Great. Thanks so much for having me and uh, keep safe and uh, hopefully we'll get out of this soon. Same to you, Ian. All right. Ian Greening, owner of Artistic Integrity Tattoo Studio in Port Credit. This caught my eye um, the end of last week and I thought we've got to reach out and talk to one of my friends who is not only an an exceptional chef, but also a partner and executive chef at Pizza Libretto to talk about the fact that pizza consumption has surged during the pandemic. In fact, Rob and I were just talking about this. Rob does pizza Sundays at his house every uh, Sunday night, uh, makes the dough, puts together a pizza last night, funnily enough, probably because I I had pizza on my mind because I knew this interview was coming up. I had pizza, but according to Nielsen's, frozen pizza sales increased by 20% in March. That's about $650 across the uh, country, as in million dollars, not million pies. Nearly three-quarters of all Canadian households bought some sort of do-it-yourself pizza this year, or uh, they went to uh, some of the most successful pie-making establishments in order to do takeout, or they are getting frozen pies from where? Some of the most successful pie-making establishments in the city that had to pivot to stay alive during lockdown put together frozen pizzas that they can they sell at your local grocery store, one of them being Pizza Libretto. Rocco Agostino is executive chef and partner at Pizza Libretto, friend of mine, and he joins the show. Rocco, good to have you on. How are you? Hi, Kelly. I'm well. How are you? Thank you for having me. I am fantastic. So what, maybe you can clarify this because I know you've had a relationship with pizza um, throughout your life, you're Italian, but why do Canadians have such a love affair with pizza? Uh, it's it's pizza. I mean, personally, I think uh, it's one of those universal comfort foods. Um, and what better way during these crazy times, during the pandemic, uh, to have something that really feels good? Uh, I right. feel like pizza is one of those things. And it's it's easy to consume. You can have it as you go. Um, 
And it, it, you're right. It is something uh, that a lot of us do a, a particular pizza night in our family and have since we were kids. How's the pandemic affected your business? Um, not going to lie. It's been a little hard. Uh, even from the beginning of the pandemic, it was a little difficult. Uh, the uncertainty of it all. Uh, we went from serving guests and their families uh, indoors uh, to closing five restaurants, laid off over 200 employees, and had no idea of how long it would go on for. Are you shocked that it's gone on this long? Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, you but it, it, go ahead. Sorry, you're in the lockdown area, so you're in the G, you're in Toronto. Um, so you haven't been able to open at all for in-store service. I mean, this this we must be crippling. I, I think it was a period during the summer, a small period, but that mm -hmm. was it. Right. So how's your approach to pizza making making at Pizza Libretto ha had to adjust because of this lockdown? Well, uh, after the pandemic, I mean, a couple of weeks uh, into it, uh, we went back in and started focusing on how we needed to change things, how uh, and what we needed to do to make it work uh, and what would make sense for takeout and delivery. So we revised our menu. Um, we, uh, along with our Neapolitan pizzas, we introduced uh, Sicilian pizzas. Uh, we also introduced a New York style 16 inch uh, pizza that uh, really travels well uh, in the delivery format. Mm -hmm. uh, and then we also revisited an idea that we first tested about six years ago. Uh, and that was our Neapolitan pizza in a frozen format. Right now, you were talking about Sicilian pizzas, Neapolitan pizza. I think uh, Napoli was, I could be wrong on this, the birthplace of pizza. Hey, Rocco, by the way, just a little heads up to you. If if that's your computer sounding off, just go to any of the tabs you have open and just mute them. Like, click on it and mute them, and that'll that'll get rid of that sound, because I know it's frustrating. Probably you're like, what is going on? Um, but what's the difference between a Neapolitan pizza and a Sicilian pizza? And I know that you know this because you actually train your chefs in Napoli. Like you've taken them to Naples to train. We have. We've gone to uh, Naples with uh, a few of our chefs. Uh, the main difference uh, with a Neapolitan pizza um, is the oven. It's the ingredients themselves. Uh, we bake our pizza in a 800 degree oven for about two minutes. Sorry, that keeps on going off. And I'm. <laughs> Don't worry about it. Keep going. Anyway. Uh, and then the Sicilian pizza is uh, uh, one more of a focaccia style, and it's done in a pan, uh, okay. kind of um, similar to what I'm used to when uh, growing up. Oh, okay. I see. Now that is interesting because I uh, the whole time I've known you, you've been always in a Neapolitan pizza. So um, I know as well that you've had to pivot. You've got to go into the frozen. Why is Neapolitan pizza appropriate for frozen? Where freezing? Where you know a, a bigger, um, thicker pizza dough wouldn't be. Well, it's also the, the thin uh, finished crust. Uh, it's the blistered crust uh, of a Neapolitan pizza that sort of uh, sets us apart from all the other frozen pizzas that are on the market. That's funny that you and bring it. Cooks it, really fast it cooks very fast. One of the things that you, yeah. you, you just mentioned is like all the other frozen pizzas that are on the market. I mean, it's not like just the boxes of Delicio show in your freezer anymore. It's, it's gone beyond that. A lot of restaurants have pivoted. Now I know that you've always welcomed competition as a restaurateur. I mean, it, it's competitive, but you've welcomed it. How about now with so many restaurants trying to stay afloat by making frozen pizzas and even online pizza subscription? Uh, yeah, I, I think there's always room for pizza. Um, 
uh, different styles of pizzas. Uh, since the beginning of uh, 2008, we've always uh, focused on giving the best product possible uh, for our guests, uh, which now includes uh, the line of frozen pizzas that we uh, serve. Um, we've also uh, proven to uh, to guests, uh, you know, that it's something that they sort of really enjoy. Pizza script, uh, subscriptions is something that we've sort of uh, talked about and discussed, uh, but the focus for us uh, right now is to grow how many people get to see our pizza walking down the grocery aisle. Right. And how many grocery stores are you affiliated with now, Pizza Libretto? Uh, right now, we're in about 27 grocers across wow. uh, Toronto. And Kingston. Okay, why Kingston? Uh, I guess there's a couple of markets uh, out there, and there were people that were interested in our frozen pizza, um, and we said, why not? It's a really different um, concept. You know, now you have to have a relationship with not just your clients, but you have to re- have a relationship with you know um, conglomerates that run grocery stores or even small grocery businesses. That's got to be another challenge during this pandemic that wasn't anticipated. And um, I guess you've had to, you know, make sure that there was there, those relationships were set up. Did they come to you or did you go to them? Uh, To be honest, uh, at the beginning, it it was a little bit of an old school knocking on doors, Mm -hmm. uh, seeing uh, who would want to take our product. Uh, but we're at the point now where uh, grocers are calling us, asking mm-hmm. for our product. All right. Can this keep you afloat through the pandemic? 100%. Um, I think uh, Libretto has a, a unique pre- uh, uh, product uh, in the premium frozen pizza market. Uh, right now we're producing a good uh, thousand pizzas a day. Uh, we're working towards uh, producing about 5,000 uh, in the near future. Wow. And I think the ultimate goal would be uh, 10,000 a day. I know I saw online that you've had to close down your King Street um, Pizza Libretta location. Is that where you're doing most of the have you turned that into a basically a conveyor belt of, of creating pizza? Where do you do that? Uh, uh, basically, basically, yeah, that, uh, we, we did uh, turn our King Street into a uh, commissary and the frozen pizza production. That's incredible. How many people can you employ to, to do that? Uh, we right now have about uh, 24. Okay, so you're keeping uh, some of your staff busy doing this. I just want to ask you very quickly before I let you go, what's it like to open a new location during the pandemic? Because I know you did in the junction, right? We did, yeah. Uh, um, That's where I'm uh, having the call from right now. Uh, It's been good. I mean, it's it was a little difficult because we had the place before the pandemic and we were planning on opening in April. Um, Landlord was uh, understanding of the whole situation and we opened it up about a couple of months ago, uh, and the neighborhood has been very welcoming, and we've been very grateful for that. Do you think you're going to have to keep this frozen pizza business going after the pandemic? Is this another arm of the business you did not, not anticipate? And moving forward, Pizza Libretto will not just be a fresh place, a great restaurant to meet friends in, a great place to take pizza out from uh, if you want to get it hot and ready, but also um, something that you see in your grocery store moving forward. A hundred percent. It's become uh, an arm of Pizzeria Libretto. I mean, hopefully one day we'll be across Canada. All right. Well, I can uh, I can state this. Uh, we, you know, this is uh, an honest, uh, honest endorsement. It's fantastic pizza. And I know that you are the kind of person that cares about the products, what goes into what you're cooking and the people that are eating your uh, pizza. So I can say if you see a Pizza Libretto, pick one up. Because it is not going to disappoint. Thanks so much, Rocco. Appreciate your time. Thank you.
Thank you, Kelly. Right. I appreciate it. All the best. That is Rocco Agostino, who's the executive chef and partner at Pizza Libretto, and they are now doing frozen pizza. Pizza sales just soaring. I want to talk about the guy who found shrimp tails in his cinnamon toast crunch. Um, he is a comedy writer. I think he writes, uh, he's been writing for ages now, and there's word on the street that this guy might be up to no good when it comes to other people's work, but that's another story that was breaking on the internet over the weekend. But this guy uh, takes a picture of these shrimp tails in his cinnamon toast crunch. And he basically uh, reaches out to General Mills, who are the maker of cinnamon toast crunch. And he says, um, why are there shrimp tails in my cereal? Tweets it out with a photo that looks like sugar-coated shrimp tails. And the company then responded, apologizing for the mishap, offering to replace the box, said, can you please send us a direct message to collect more details? Thanks. And he said, yeah, I'm not sure I'm ready for another box, but I've sent you a direct message. Fair warning, I look different since I ate your shrimp today. And he tweeted out a close-up picture of a shrimp. So um, I immediately, my knee-jerk reaction to this story was, give me a break. He put those shrimp tails there. Now, I have no proof of that. That that's just was my immediate reaction. I'm sure there are people listening right now who thought the same thing. Um, but two hours later, General Mills tweets back and says it appears to be an accumulation of the cinnamon sugar that sometimes can occur when ingredients aren't thoroughly blended. We assure you there's no possibility of cross-contamination with shrimp. Uh, and he responded back, the guy that got the coated shrimp, sugar-coated shrimp tails, any further investigation with my eyes, these are cinnamon-coated shrimp tails, you weirdos. I wasn't at all mad at you until now when you tried to gaslight me. So um, let's talk about this a little bit more. We're joined now by Josh Cobden, who's a crisis communication specialist at Proof Strategies. Good to have you on, Josh. Thanks for having me on, Kelly. My first question is, does a shrimp tail or two in my cereal actually constitute a crisis? <laughs> Well, uh, what should have been, uh, I think, a shrimpy issue for, for, for General Mills turned into a whale-sized reputational problem. Uh, if you just look at the number of people that have been talking about this over the last week, and not in a good way. So I think there's two matters at hand here, preparation and execution. And it appears that the company may have fallen down on both fronts. So there, there's no way that General Mills had anything in their playbook um, that, that, that it was ready to go with how do we respond if there's a foreign object beyond our cereal found in our cereal box and it's not something we put there on purpose. Is that what you're basically saying? Well, it's a very good question. I mean, every brand needs to be prepared for some sort of uh, issue and all the issues that they can possibly predict and then have a plan in place to deal with them. So if you make, as you say, if you make breakfast cereal, the chance that something other than cereal will find its way into your product is, is probably fairly slim, but it, but it can happen, and it does happen with packaged goods. So you need to have a playbook in place and be ready to respond in a way that de-escalates the situation and protects your reputation. And as well, don't you have to have something in your playbook on how you deal with people in social media that might be you know, making something up, might be disingenuous with their claims? Yeah, well, I, I think that it's bad luck for them that the person involved here was a comedian with a platform, <laughs> but he did give them a chance. You know, he started out by sending them a private email. This is what you want. And then he eventually took to social media, which many of us do when we don't get a swift response, which which he didn't. And that got their attention. 
I think they started out right by apologizing, you know, offering the replacement product. Why they decided to pivot to a more offensive approach um, is beyond me because that was like raise, you know, raising a, a, a waving a red flag in front of a bull, and that's when things I think started to go south for them. What should they have d- done differently then? Well, I think ultimately they should have responded faster to the first email. He sent them a note, and it took them several hours to respond. And, you know, we have instant gratification syndrome now. So when he didn't get an immediate response, he went straight to Twitter. And so they needed to have a plan in place for a situation like this. And then if they did, follow it. And that plan would have been respond empathetically, privately, de-escalate, don't escalate, especially on social media. Um, it doesn't seem they did that. And it could be that, you know, somebody higher up than the, you know, lowly communication, uh, community manager that they had on the, on the job said, hey, I smell a rat here or a shrimp. Um, uh, we need to fight back and bark back at this fellow. But it doesn't seem to have been the right thing to do. Well, they might have been operating uh, under the assumption that a lot of people thought, you know, off the hop like I did, ah, this guy's making this up. Um, you know, this is just an elaborate ruse here to get attention. You had mentioned the different types of reputational threats to my producer, Chris. Can we go through them and how companies should prepare for each? Because you're a crisis communication specialist. It wouldn't dawn on me that there are numerous types of rep- uh, reputational threats out there. Yeah, there are. And so the first and the, the lowest threat is something what I, that I would call an issue. So if you make sugary cereal, an issue that is out there in the public domain is some people don't approve of sugary cereals. And, you know, they're not going to buy them for their kids. And, you know, maybe occasionally they'll put something on social media about the problems with sugary cereals. But then there's a, a constituency that will buy them. And that's obviously who you're selling to. If something happens in the public domain that may sway that group. So for example, if a new study comes out that shows that you know, what we thought were the risks of sugary cereal are in fact much greater, all of a sudden that issue then may increase to an emergency. An emergency is something that you know and can predict might happen, even though it might be unlikely. So like I said, if you make cereal, you've gotta know that at some point something might get into the cereal box that wasn't supposed to be there and a consumer will find it or allege that this happened. And you need to have a playbook for that. And that is what we would call an emergency. And there are many ways that you can prepare and handle an emergency. And we help clients with that all the time so that when they do happen, they get de-escalated quickly. The Safe third, to say. Oh, oh, go, go ahead. ahead. No, the, the, I was just thinking that the, 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 that it was safe to say that General Mills is right now in an emergency situation. But I didn't know there was a third. Well, the third is what we call crisis. And and a crisis is something that involves your brand that's really, really hard to predict. So, for example, you know, if if you run an airline, uh, there are all kinds of things that can happen, you know, wrong for an airline, the worst being obviously a plane crash. What you might not prepare for, though, is video footage that gets leaked of your cabin crew in the the airport lounge. and, And, you know, maybe they seem like they're intoxicated. Now, all of a sudden, your brand is being dragged into something that may not be in your playbook. Um, And we've seen lots of situations like this in the past, and that's where a company's, the strength of their brand is important, their moral compass is important, the corporate values that they have in place, and their ability to take a deep breath and do the right thing. All right, so what should General Mills do now that they've botched this? Well, I think, you know, a thorough investigation might satisfy any internal concerns about how this happened and at the very least you know provide a logical explanation if if to their defense if this you know continues to escalate 
I think, though, it is dying down. And so they should monitor social media to see if, if that indeed happens. And there are already signs that people are beginning to doubt, as you said, the, that the accusation is true. And, you know, the accuser himself is now starting to face an accusation. So, you know, you live by the sword, you, you die by the sword. Regardless, right. though, I think this has been a lesson for them. Whether this claim is true or false, it doesn't appear they handled it well. So it's time for them to, you know, revisit, review and recommit to their playbook. It's a lesson for them, and you've given us some uh, great lessons to be learned for people listening that run businesses. Just always be prepared. Thank you so much, Josh. It's been a a real pleasure uh, having you on the show. Thanks for having me. Have a great day. Hey, thanks so much for joining the podcast. You know, we broadcast live three hours a day between 9 and noon. You can find us online at 640toronto.com or on your radio, 640 Toronto.